Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this interview, we're speaking with Todd Piggott, a self-made real estate investor and financier. Todd's been a lifelong entrepreneur who's built businesses and now invests in other real estate entrepreneurs through mortgage financing. What I appreciate most about Todd's interview is how he shares with us his analytical approach to evaluating risk and market opportunities. I thought this was really informative and the kind of thing you'd want in a professional investor. It's also insightful for anybody who's looking to raise capital for real estate or really any other deal. Todd has a great story and lots of knowledge to share. I'm sure you'll find value in this interview. And before we get started, I want to share with you one of the services our business, Creative Return, provides. Video is the most powerful and versatile tool for you to engage new investors and help convert them into shareholders. But it needs to be done with a strategy. Before you invest money in video production, we should talk. I'll personally talk you through the intricacies and strategies of optimizing your investment into marketing with videos. This is important because without a strategy, all you're going to get is a motion picture. You can connect with us at creativereturn.ca slash video. That's creativereturn.ca slash video. Now, on with the show. Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you, Corey, for having me today. Great to be here. Yes. So, Todd, we started out with with a pretty pretty interesting, just kind of a pre-call discussion, all, all the way back to like, you live close to my original stomping grounds 35 years ago in, in Fresno, California, and uh, the, the foothills to Yosemite. Then we started to get into a bit of your background. And I want to know your business, and we're going to get into that, but I also want to know you first. And I feel like there's going to be a really good conversation ahead of us. So can you give me a background and, and give me some of the history of yourself and how you've built up Zinc, which is Absolutely. an organization? And by the way, just to mention here, I also arrived here about 35 years ago in the Fresno area. Okay. So we got here both about the same time. I think you're younger than me, but uh, you know, it was back in the, the elementary and junior high school that I also landed here. So Great question. A little bit about me. I was born in Southern California, specifically in Montebello, California. My father at that time was a vice president for Pacific Life Investments out of Newport Beach. I was raised in the Anaheim and Garden Grove area with a a pretty rudimentary childhood, as most would suspect. My parents did go through a divorce and my parents ended up divorced as we moved to Fresno at that time. My father moved here at that time to start his own financial services company, we came here too. But unfortunately, that became a very difficult period in my life. I ended up with my mother and we ended up on on welfare. It was a very, very tough upbringing. At times, we did not have food. We spent a lot of time on Salisbury steaks and, and pot pies and processed food products. I really did not understand the value of healthy eating or or grilled chicken or even salads. We simply did not have that in our household. Our household at that time turned into candidly existence. A lot of tears, a lot of utilities being shut off, cars broken, we didn't have money, and it was a very, very treacherous period. During this time, I was at Clovis High School, and I played water polo and swimming at that time. That was kind of my outlook. Even though we were massively broke and had some very difficult challenges at that time, I, I stuck with my water polo and uh, swimming career there. I went to Fresno State, and I enrolled at Fresno State into the construction and development program. During that time period, you could actually enroll in a state university and not pay your books nor your tuition. You had a a grace period, I guess is what I would call it. And so I worked at Big Five Sporting Goods at the time. Hmm. It was my first job. And after taxes, I made $2.61 an hour. And at that time at Big Five Sporting Goods, there's about 100 of them here in California, 
you had to wear a tie, a dress shirt, and slacks. I know that sounds odd, but that was the requirement. But I wore the same tie and the same dress shirt. Martin was the manager there, and he came to me one day and says, you know, Todd, we need you to get more dress shirts and more ties. And I said, Martin, I, I love you, and I love this place, but I make two sixty one an hour after taxes. I've enrolled at Fresno State in the construction program, and I play water polo and swimming, and I have $17 to my name, nothing more. I haven't even paid my tuition. And we agreed to separate at that time, and we terminated my employment, mutual consent. And I went out to the parking lot in Fresno, and I sat in my blue pickup truck at the time, which was a 1972 Ford Courier that had duct tape around the water hose and backfired every time I shifted from third to fourth gear. (laughs) And during this period, I sat there for almost five hours with $17 to my name, no checking, no savings, no job, enrolled at Fresno State and haven't paid my tuition or books yet. So I called Fresno State and I withdrew from the construction program. I got a call about two weeks later from my counselor. He's a heavyset man, a really nice guy. And he said, why did you withdraw? I said, uh, I don't have any money. I can't pay the tuition. I can't pay the books. I'm sitting at home on my bed all day long trying to figure out what to do with my life. He called me back three days later and he said, I found a scholarship for you. Your first year tuition is covered. Your first year books is covered. You had a 3.85 out of Clovis High. You're in water polo and swimming. We found you a scholarship. So I re-enrolled back in Fresno State, but I still had my tuition and my books covered, but I still didn't have any money. My mom was broke. The Ford Tempo she had was still sitting in the driveway. The front garage door didn't work at that time, so we couldn't even get the broken car into the garage to work on it. It was just a tough deal. So I made that decision with about $17 in my pocket that I've I've got to do something else. So I went home to my mother and I said, I'm going to borrow your vacuum and I'm going to borrow some trash bags and I'm going to start cleaning buildings. And the reason I'm going to do this is because Harold Zane at the time, who ran the water polo and swimming program out of Fresno State, ended practices on a varied time, depending on the day of the week that happened to fit the team schedule. So sometimes we'd end at 5, sometimes we'd end at 6 p.m., sometimes 7 p.m., sometimes 8 or 9 p.m., depending on what the schedule was at that time. So I couldn't have a consistent job. And I said, Mom, I've got to make some money. So I need to borrow your vacuum and I need to borrow your trash bag. And I need to go see if I can clean some buildings because I can do that after water polo practice ends. So I borrowed a trash bag and I borrowed a vacuum and I went knocking door to door trying to clean buildings in uh, Fresno. And so I got Pat Rogers and Associates at that time for $63, Double B Produce for another $63, Warren Love Construction. I charged him $65 and by the end of the first month, I had almost $180 in my pocket. And so then uh, Spano Enterprises was my third client. He offered me 210. He was a very well-known builder in this area, and I started cleaning his office. By the month number three, I was already at $800 in gross revenue. I was reusing my mom's temporary bag in the vacuum, so I would pull the dirt out of those temporary bags and throw it in a dumpster, and I would use that same garbage bag over and over again. I would just empty it and then use the same garbage bag. And so by the third month, I was $800. So the rest of the story is, I graduated with Fresno State with my degree in construction and finance. I grew that company from $17 over a period of 17 years to about uh, 500 employees, about 50 subcontractors that owned another 500 employees. So we had about 1,000 employees. We were in three states, and we managed all the Targets, the Mervins, the Aldersons, Smart and Finals, Big Lots, you name it. We did a lot of retail centers, a lot of shopping malls. We expanded into exterior services from graffiti to, to lot striping, to pressure washing, to lighting and maintenance, et cetera. So that company over 17 years became from what was $17 in a parking lot of Big Five into a multi-million dollar company. I was then into in an accident. I rolled a utility vehicle with myself and my three kids, and we almost died. We were all rushed to trauma. I had six surgeries and I decided at that time that I really was not passionate. I was never passionate about facilities maintenance. What I really liked was construction. That's my passion. That's what my degree is in. That's what I enjoyed. And so during this period, I decided to sell the company. I sold the company to a private equity firm out of New York. I had acquired three other companies during that time. So I had run three other companies, acquired that company built it up, and then sold it to a private equity group. That's when I founded Zinc, which is where we're at today. I have, during the last 17 years of owning and operating Zinc, we started as a small little operator buying properties. 
rehabilitating them, and then reselling them to earn a profit. I do have my license, contractor's license, as well as my real estate broker's license. And so that's how Zinc was started. So we started doing small projects at that time. And then we eventually built that up over a period of time. We started with a small house that was $80,000. And so as of today, I've fixed, flipped, and rehabbed nearly $100 million of real estate in the SFR space. I'm actually one of the largest rehabbers in the state of California at this point in time. Then we started getting into lending which investors started to come with me and invest alongside me during our lending platform. We started lending and that became very successful. Now, today we've done almost a billion dollars. That's a billion of lending on fix and flip properties or what we call residential transitional loans. It's a residential property that needs a short-term bridge loan. And so we do that. So that's kind of the story in a nutshell of where I started, where I ended and a little bit about me. Man, I, I love the entrepreneurial journey there and, and the ability. It's, it's, it's so neat to see like you come into something and you need to make some money. And then the best way to be successful in business is to be in business. So you go from facilities maintenance on the interior to, to, to graffiti removal and, and lot striping and on and on and on and then selling that business. So fascinating to see that build up. Thank you very much. How do you think the your early days have really influenced you? Well, there's two things that, that came out of my earlier years. And the first one is, and I'm very serious about this, is character and integrity. Hmm. I was broke. We were broke. Not once did we violate our character and integrity. We did not steal. We did not lie. We did not cheat. Not one single time. I was the most respectful of my position there at Big Five. I also worked at a pizza parlor. I was the cashier. Money was never missing. So during these times of complete adverse effects on our family and, and, the, and the monetary things we were succumbing to, not once did we do anything that was improper. That has stayed without me this whole entire period. I say what I say. I do what I'm going to do. I call it my fishbowl theory. I operate hmm in a fishbowl. Everybody can see what we're doing. Everybody can see what I'm doing. There's nothing to run from. Full transparency, full ethics, full character, full integrity. I haven't wavered on that one single bit. The second thing is finesse and grind. Boy, those earlier years, I worked almost 10 years, seven days a week. And I mean, every Saturday and Sunday. I started at 4.30 in the morning. I ended at 10 o'clock at night. So it was a very, very much a grind, but I was not going to live the rest of my life in, a, in, a, in, a, in this poverty situation. So I decided early on that the best avenue for success is, is always be transparent in your dealings. It's so much easier and so much more refreshing than, than trying to do things you know, improperly or incorrectly or not transparently. And the second thing is I have not found an easy path. It's grind and it's grit. I have tried easy paths. They did not work. I've tried easy investments. They did not work. So I would say those are the two, two paramount things that came for me is just always operate with, with transparency and honesty. It's so much easier, so much more relaxing and rewarding. And the second part of it, it's grind. You're up at six, you're getting home at six. It's, it's a 10 to 12 hour day. Your lunch might be at your desk and it might involve some weekends. And I don't, I don't see how that changes. You know, when it comes to the transparency piece, there's what comes along with that is a degree of vulnerability. And, and in that vulnerability, there's actually a, a bit of a superpower, the ability to, to help people trust you. So there is a vulnerability because when you're completely transparent and completely honest with your dealings, you're opening yourself up for a couple of problems, you know, challenging risk financially, risk trust wise, whatever. But I've just found that path to be so much easier. You don't have to remember what you said to whom. You don't have to keep track etc. It's it's just an easier path. When you have so many data points hitting you all day long, it's just so much easier to, to explain how it is or what it is, even in times of crisis. Just explain the facts, explain the path to liquidity, or explain the path to stabilization. And it's really fascinating. Most people, when you call them or divulge in complete transparency, whatever that issue is or that crisis is, most are taken back. Most are stalled for a response. They can no longer be angry. They can no longer yell and scream or challenge you. It's just they become quiet. 
And that's because I've told them everything I know as of that day and how I'm going to fix it. Mm. And oftentimes it involves me cutting a check and I'm fine with that too. I spent $20,000 last month of my own money protecting a lien on a property. No problem. It's, it's fine with me. And so I do that. Mm-hmm. And then I tell the investor that we do that. And I don't gloat about it. I just simply say, look, this is what happened. We have an investor that went south. He went dark on us. We can't get the plans and permits. He has a, a family dispute and is no longer active in communication with us. And so here's what I did. I, pour, I put force place coverage on it. We started the foreclosure process. We've gotten an assessment on the collateral, both in valuation as well as interior interior and exterior assessment on condition. We've done a door knock. We've done all these tools from my tool chest, from all my history. We've done a billion dollars of this. And this is what I think the extraction is going to be. And so I lay it all out. I tell them I've already advanced funds. If we get that money back, great. If not, that's fine too. At the end of the day, it's about being transparent with your investors or your parties or whomever. And that alleviates a lot of the stress. And so you you have a path to success. And so that's what we did. We spent that money. We got the property back. Um, we secured it and we already have it in escrow and we uh, and actually intend on getting our money back as well as all of the investors money back. So I think the point to that is, is that we, we just operate, you know, I tell my staff here, we operate in a fishbowl, always tell them what they need to know and make sure that it's accurate to the best of our ability at that point in time. People say, what does that mean? Well, I might get more information later that might change my perception of the facts today. So the facts today are as I know them right now in full transparency, but that might change. So it's really helped me and it's cost me money and that's okay. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm completely okay with the fact that that's, that's how we operate and that's hard to do in business. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. How has it been for you growing these businesses? I mean, you really started out as a single entrepreneur and then been able to grow up to, to hundreds of employees. And, and I want to, I want to discuss the finance and, and, the business models you have now. Sure. But how have you found yourself growing as a leader? How have you had to change? I would say the biggest challenge, biggest challenge in changing over time is, is the human element. Humans have changed a lot over the last you know, 30 years. Mm. They've, they've changed. And so I think that managing or being a chameleon and having to change the color of your skin in today's climate is more difficult and takes a lot more finesse than it probably did 25 years ago. So adapting the hardest complexity I would say today is probably HR or humans. Software has gotten easier. Mm. IT has gotten easier. Our air conditioners in our buildings work better now than they did 20 years ago. I mean, cars work better now than they did 20 years ago. So there's a lot of things that have improved in the cycle of business. There's a lot of things that have become easier, but, but managing humans maybe that's not so true. That's become harder and a little bit more difficult. And I think that you need to have the proper the proper body language, the proper tone, as well as the proper words and the proper skill set to be able to try to intertwine with expectations today. The expectations of a of a 25-year-old new employee today are much different than a 25-year-old employee of say 30 years ago. I think managing that has been probably my most difficult obstacle and ability to overcome. And something that you've had to, to grow to, to learn how to do. Yeah, it really is a good point that so many things have gotten easier. Software, IT, mechanical, you know, all of these kind of things are just, they're starting to find their stride. But on the flip side, the, the HR component, it's just, it, it's mind-boggling at times. It is mind-boggling. It is difficult. And, and that, is, that is something that leaders today or managers even, leaders today or at the executive level. And that's what I call a leader. That's something they're really going to have to work on. And that's something that I have struggled to to work on as well is how to communicate expectations, results with this new paradigm shift of, of talent and human expectations. And that's, that's it's, it's, I would say that is a tougher commodity today than what it was 20 years ago. The obstacle of entitlement. It's an obstacle of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ah, and uh, that that has, you know, when I was growing up, I worked every Saturday for almost a decade. I worked Sundays. I worked every night until 2.30 or 3 in the morning. I wasn't entitled to anything 
fundme.com was me mowing my neighbor's yard for $5. And that was the fund me. So there was no entitlement. There was, there was nothing. You had to go get it done on yourself or figure it out on your own. Today, we have a, a tremendous amount of, of entitlement expectations everywhere, mm. you know, everywhere. And that, that is difficult to manage. And, and parts of it are sad. When you go into a Starbucks, there's there's hundreds of things to make you satisfied. And yet if our coffee is not ready in 30 seconds, we're getting upset. Yeah. We should not be like that. When you go into a Baskin Robbins ice cream, they have 31 flavors. Why are you angry that your ice cream wasn't done the way you ordered it? There's 31 ice cream flavors here and it's all going to work out at the end. It's not that big of a deal. But our expectations, our human expectations to walk into a Baskin-Robbins ice cream as we want it now, 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 and we want it perfect, perfect, perfect with just the amount of nuts, just the amount of whipped cream. And I want the exact flavor of ice cream. I ordered a three ice cream sundae and I want Rocky Road and I want vanilla and strawberry. And you put two strawberry. Why'd you do that? You weren't even listening. All of that is, is kind of sad that we've morphed into our expectations and entitlement in reality, it's a bowl of ice cream and there's 31 yeah. flavors here. You know, back yeah. many years ago, they had, back when my dad was a child, they, they had a store that had ice cream, it was one flavor. It was yeah. one, it was vanilla and they had it for that yeah. week. And, and so I think there's an entitlement or an expectation in humans today that has made it a little bit more difficult to manage and grow. What, what, I, what I take from that is actually from a management side, when you think about just management advice, it's like, you know what? Hey, you got two scoops. Let's just move on. Let's just roll on. You just got to kind of roll with punches. But then also, I just want to maybe just put a point on, on this, this part of the discussion of like, it really, I think we as a society are facing a crisis of abundance. And, and that's a really interesting point to be in is when you have too many options, you start to it's not a good thing. I call it overstimulation. Yeah. Yeah. It is fascinating how overstimulated we are driving down any street. There is fast food on every corner. There's 30 soda options on every corner, option after option after option. It is overstimulation, both technology-wise as well as, as consumer-wise. And our expectations of that are really overwhelming as well. I think mm. it's, I, I think we could be reaching the point of of criticalness on overstimulation with so many different options out there. And yet, what do we do as humans? We even want it faster, better, quicker. We want to develop a new <laughs> app. Instead of that coffee being ready in one minute, we're now got an app that's somehow going to remember what your last coffee is and get it to you in 25 seconds. It's it's a, it's, it's a lot. It's kind of fascinating to see this, this human affliction. But I want to ask a question, and I want to move into more of the business of, of zinc and what you're doing there. Sure. But leading out of what we have here is with what's happening with this overstimulation and, and this entitlement, and you add in things like inflation, cost of housing, housing shortages, labor shortages, perhaps this is a big question for you, but what is happening to the American dream, the white picket fence? Is it still attainable? Well, this is a... This is an interesting topic that you bring up because I actually study this. And the reason okay. I study this is because the American dream or what you are calling the American dream is you mentioned housing shortage, you mentioned inflation, you mentioned a few other things. So our American population is changing probably at the fastest pace that it's changed. And I study this and this is why I study it. I want to know where to place my investors and my capital that is most granular and safe from a principal protection standpoint. And for me to have that data and have that intel, I have to get to the metrics of how our society is changing. And it is changing. And here's where the big change is coming into play. And I get my information. I get my information from about really two sources. I get it from the General Services Administration. And I get it from the National Association of Realtors. So I don't get it from magazines or tabloids or internet. I get my data and I pay for it and I extrapolate it out. And this is some changes that we're seeing in, in, our, in our market today. Childbearing is down for the second year in a row. People are holding off on having children. The average age of a male marriage today is 29 and a half. The average age of a female is 27. 
Back when I got married, it was 23 and 24. When my dad got married, it was 18. Hmm. So our population of married couples is shrinking pretty drastically. Our childbearing is also shrinking drastically. The priority on possessions of, of a home and grandma's china and grandma's dinette set and creating that three-bedroom, two-bath home with a dog, a white fence, and children has also evaporated. Here's what we're seeing a lot of today. A lot of, there is a huge demand for multifamily and a huge demand for simple entry-level homes. On the multifamily, the demand is overwhelming for one bedroom and two bedroom with a lot of amenities that apply to the single workforce. They want wine bars. They want business centers. They want IT compatible lobbies. They want snack bars. They want coffee bars, beer tasting, all within a community of multifamily. Multifamily in California, we have the lowest, or I'm sorry, the highest occupancy rate that we've ever had. In Fresno, it's 99.5%. There is a North Fresno apartment complex. The one bedrooms are completely sold out. The two bedrooms are sold out, but there are three bedrooms there's plenty of. I have another Mm -hmm. friend that went to another apartment complex in Fresno. The one bedrooms, nine month waiting list, two bedrooms, a four month waiting list, but they had three bedrooms. Why? This is why. People are not getting married and having kids and getting into larger homes and developing the dog, the pool and the white house. People are staying single. People are not having children. They're much more transient. People in their 20s and 30s move a lot, and 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 they're transient, both in professions, job, as well as social circles, and they're more akin to just living in a small apartment or whatever. So today's demand in the space that I kind of focus on is multifamily is in high demand. I'll tell you the four asset classes. They're very, very stable right now. Very stable. Again, this is direct from what I get my metrics from, which is the GSA. Here's the four asset classes that are very stable today. Entry-level simple housing. It's in high demand. This is something that a small family can get or a single person or even just a married couple that's not going to be childbearing. There is a big demand for entry-level housing that is smaller and more uh, conducive to our lifestyle changes today. Big demand. There is a huge demand for multifamily, especially one and two bedroom with extra amenities. That is moving very fast. The other two asset classes are mini storage as well as industrial. Why us us Americans are accumulating more stuff and mini storage is very, very resilient. And so is industrial because we're doing so much stuff online. The retail sector is struggling. Office space is struggling. Commercial is struggling. So Zinc Income Fund and Zinc, where we tend to focus in, is, is actually those two asset classes. Entry-level housing below the median cost of housing or small-cap multifamily. That's where we focus. Why? Because I know that those two asset classes are extremely stable. They're not volatile, and they're in a very, very needed capacity across the country, despite geography. It's widely widely known that entry-level housing and small-cap multifamily is in high demand right now. I want to get your take on this, and I really appreciate your analysis on on how you've approached this. I think it's it's super diligent. When it comes to to the American dream, it's changing then, right? And it's, I agree, it's changing at the fastest space at the fastest pace we've ever seen. Yeah, this twenty year old group, they're not interested in cars, they're not yeah. interested in grandma's jewelry, they're not interested in grandma's. Wedding dress, China set, and all that stuff. They're not interested in any of that. They're interested in perception of themselves, i.e., on social media. They're interested in monetary. And they're interested in primarily a lot of them are interested in maintaining single and not childbearing. It's at a it's at an all-time low. So mm. the American dream, as you and I might visualize the American dream, is now different today. Younger people are, are not getting married and they're not having the children. That's just a fact. That's a, that's a mathematical fact. And their definition of the American dream might be more transient. And their perception of how they look and or feel presentation-wise on social media. 
Like my kids, you know, my kids, they don't want a souped up Mustang. You know, they don't want that new special tricked out car. They don't want that special new tricked out stereo system or the new Walkman. You remember all these things that you and I wanted? They don't want that, but they sure as heck are on their phone all the time. And they are concerned, as most people are, how they interact on a phone or social media and things of that nature. So their dream is different than our dream. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I'm, I'm trying to, well, there's one side of, of, well, go where the money's going. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. That's, where, and, and that's what I'm so. doing. I go, I know this information, not from a standpoint of curiosity. I know it from my job is to operate a very successful zinc income fund with good yields and principal protection. Those are my two mantras, protection of principal, protection of yield. So for in order for me to have those, those two pillars and protect the principal, we have not lost any investor money in over a decade. We're talking 500 million. Our loss ratio is less than one eighth of 1%. It's negligible. How do we do that? I mean, how do we throw off returns of 8% with excellent protection of principal fully secured? How does that happen? We watch the demographics of our society and figure out what, for us, what real estate is most desirable. Why is that most desirable? Why is this real estate that we do, which is entry-level housing below the median cost of housing or entry-level small-cap multifamily, why do you select those, Todd? Because I know the demographics that I get my data from are showing me that that is exceptionally desirable because of, of our society and where, where we're going. It's, it's just what we're doing. So, so take me into how you've built these funds. I'm, I'm very curious about it. I mean, and how you're lending money. And it sounds like you've definitely narrowed in on your niche where you know you can protect that capital. Maybe first off, can you quantify like the size of the fund, the, the size of the money that you're managing? And then let's unpack that. No problem. Our fund has, you know, anywhere, we have a little bit of debt in it with equity, but our fund is, is anywhere between 35 and 45 million right now. We also have some credit lines outside that fund, and then we have some individual investors. All total, we probably manage in and out, in and out somewhere in the neighborhood of about 100 million a month. That's our size. I, sorry, 100 million a month by, by revenue, by- By volume, loan volume. Yeah, loan volume. I, w- I, would, I would call it loan volume or, or payout okay. or something of that nature. So we're doing that type of volume on a monthly basis. Our fund is 30 to 40 million right now between the debt and the equity, all assets under management, I guess is what I would call that. Okay. And so from building, a, what, what I see is it's like a lending fund or the, on the debt side. Exactly. Let's understand, or I, I'd like to understand more about that. You're going and bringing in investor capital. So let's say you raise five million, ten million, thirty million, whatever it is, and then you're deploying that on the be- or to the benefit of those investors, and you're making a margin in there for for your management. Yeah. So how this works, you know, big picture globally. Obviously, this is a lot of yeah. intricacies here. So I was obviously lending and doing a lot of lending myself or with credit lines because I had my own money. I, as I mentioned, I had sold the company, but then people learn about what I'm doing, and they want in as well, because it's an excellent vehicle to protect your principal and get yield. And so what I found is a lot of investors wanted to invest with me. My Mm. money's in here too. So they're investing with me. And so the best way to do that is we created a mortgage fund. There's, There's two types of funds out there. There's an asset fund or a debt fund. That's really the two types of funds. Our fund is a debt fund. That means we take in money into our mortgage fund. My money's in there. My family's money is in there. And then we lend that money out. We make a yield. The coupon rate of that fund on our loans is about 10.5%. And again, I'm being broad here for illustration purposes. I mean, there's obviously some changes here and changes every day as we're now learning. But high level here, we have a fund. We've lent that money out to borrowers. I call it 10.5%. That money comes in every single month to the fund. And then we distribute it in kind of a, this type of fashion, kind of a waterfall feature. The first 6% goes to our investors, including myself. That's a priority return. Obviously, that leaves about 4.5% left. The coupon rate to the borrowers, 10.5%. That money's come in. We've, we've now released instantly 6%, about 45 left over. We then earn a zinc, I should say, a percent and a half for servicing and an asset management fee. 
So we take that next in line. And then finally, after that, there's a couple of minuscule costs, like our auditor and stuff like this. And then there's excess cash, right? We mm-hmm. had 10 and a half. We paid out 6% instantly. And then, of course, we took our fee and then there's some extra cash available. That extra cash is distributed 80% to the investors, 20% to Zinc. So there's a profit sharing on the end. Yeah. Where does this gotcha. put the fund? This puts the fund at a cumulative rate of return of about 8%. But it gets better. It gets a little bit better. And here's why this gets better. We formed our fund with, as a mortgage fund through the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's a Reg D fund. And we built in a, a REIT within our fund. Some may ask, why would you do that? Well, with the Jobs Act that President Trump signed into law back in 2017, he signed into law some great tax advantages for REITs built within funds. Those tax advantages are now available to our investors. The first one is we are taxed at 80% of the dividends as opposed to 100%. Another way of looking at it is there's a 20% tax deduction on all income. And that's a very, very beneficial tax treatment. Number two, if investors outside the state of California have a more favorable tax treatment there, like Texas, that doesn't have income tax, or Nevada, investors that participate in our fund get taxed in a state they reside, irrespective of the fact that the money was made in California. This was not the case prior. So if we have people that are in tax favorable states, but they want to invest with us in California real estate, this performing exceptionally well, they can do that. And they have the option of paying taxes in the state for which they reside. Finally, the third tax benefit is if people put their IRA money in here, there is no UBIT tax. And so or tax return associated with that. That's another benefit. So we built a REIT within our fund that enables some favorable tax advantages for our investors. So it's kind of a win-win-win. This is how I look at this. It's a win-win. I love this business. I'm very passionate about it. I don't want to do anything else. We have distressed housing. We loan on distressed housing below the median cost of housing that can't get a conventional loan because of the state of disrepair. REO, probate, whatever the situation is, we have a distressed house. It is not conventionally able to be refinanced. We loan money to investors with good credit, with good credit. Our average FICO is 710. With good liquidity, they have money. So we loan money to good investors with good credit, with good liquidity, buy that property at the lowest point in the neighborhood with the intention of fixing that up over the next couple of months and reselling it to earn a profit. But here's where the win-win-win comes in. The community wins. That house was distressed. We've all seen these houses. They're in your neighborhood, Corey. They're in my neighborhood, everybody's neighborhood. Something went wrong with that house, and there's a variety of reasons why it fell into the repair it did. It's an REO, squatters, renter, whatever. By loaning this money to this investor to improve that property, we have three victories out of this thing. Number one, we've improved the neighborhood. We've improved the community. It's now got a a nice house with fresh paint on the outside, with a rolled-in green lawn, and it looks great. It's a newly remodeled home. We've improved the community. The neighbors will often come out and praise us. Thank goodness you took over this dilapidated structure. Thank goodness you cleaned it up. It looks so nice now. So we get thanked by the neighbors. That house is now cleaned up, and we've improved the community. Now we have a house for a new homeowner. There's another win. This person just got a, a good deal on a renovated property. So we have a new homeowner often in tears, and so thankful that they were able to buy this house. They could not have bought this house in its prior condition. Our, our investor wins. He makes a fair profit for taking that dilapidated structure, improving the value, selling it to a first-time homeowner, and then realizing a profit. So he's happy, and my investors are happy, because we earn approximately 8% on a fully secured note with a prime borrower with good liquidity. Our default rate is less than 1%. It's it's an excellent vehicle for people who are looking for protection of principal, coupled with good yield. At the same time, this this is helping the community because we're improving real estate. At the same time, we're helping somebody buy a new home. At the same time, we're having this investor make a few dollars. And my investors get a fair yield with protection of principal. It's kind of like autopilot. It works very, very well. And I'm really happy to be in a business that has so many victories with that doesn't have, I can't, I can't figure out the shortcoming of it. It's, it's just, it's, I'm happy with it. How has lending changed with interest rates? I know you know, I'm in Canada, you're in the U S Yeah. something that I learned about the U S when it comes to mortgages is you can, 
you can lock in like a 30-year mortgage, if I'm not mistaken. Whereas in Canada, you can, you, we only have five-year terms. Is that, is that correct? Like there's people who have 30 years on like a, a 2% mortgage. Yeah, so my wife, my wife is Canadian. My in-laws are all Canadian and all their family is still out there in Canada. Their banking and finance system and their mortgage system is very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's very, very different. It's, it's a little bit more expensive than ours. You don't have quite the appreciation or the depreciation that might occur with ours based on market conditions. So my perception of Canada is a little bit more stable as far as housing interest rates on loans are also more regulated than perhaps they are here in the U.S. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You can lock in a 30-year mortgage here. The trick with this is, though, that our mortgages are really underwritten by the federal government. So that 91% of mortgages, it was not always this way. Banks used to underwrite, keep, and balance sheet those loans. That's not the case today. They're underwritten by the federal government. They're locking in a rate for 30 years. It's a full dock loan. And so we feel you know, very good about that exit strategy for our investor being able to sell that home because candidly, you only have to find somebody with three and a half percent down that can get a government-backed loan. So another win in this strategy is these are short-term loans. Our average loan is about seven. You're, you're like the from your REIT now. Exactly. Yeah. So this or, excuse is, me, your your loan fund. Yeah, I, this is very important to me because we're we're removing the obstacle of of market volatility because we don't care. It's we're in and out of these things in eight months. So the so fact, by definition, are you guys hard money? I mean, is it high high percentage hard money? I would say no, no. And here's and I talk yeah. about this at conferences. Hard money, and I like to. That's a great question, and I really like to elaborate on that. Hard money is money that is lent to a borrower based on the value of the collateral without much due diligence on the ability to repay. And I'm going to state that one more time. Hard money is typically money that is lent strictly based on the value of the collateral without spending much time on the ability to repay. We're actually opposite here. We are a licensed lender. We have the same licensing as Wells Fargo. We are a licensed lender. We are not a hard money broker. We have the same licensing as a major bank. We're regulated by that same entity. Our fund is regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. We're watched over by one of the largest auditing firms in the nation called Spiegel. Jurassic Law is our law firm. We're audited regularly by the Department of Business Oversight. So our, our, our fund, and I forgot your original question. I apologize for that. Where was I going yeah, with that? Hard money. Hard, hard money. money versus yeah, where yeah. hard money is simply only on the value of the collateral. We look at credit. We look at their liquidity. We are connected to all three credit bureaus here. We pull credit. We look. We do background checks. We do these things. So I would call us private money. That's what I tend to focus our term on is private money. We have the same credit restrictions as major banks. We have the same liquidity restrictions. Well, then, then how do you get that high yield? How do you get at such a higher rate than a bank? Like, why doesn't the guy go to the bank and get the loan? Why would they pay you 10.5% when rates are at 4.5% at a bank? And here's the answer to that. Banks or other depository institutions get their capital from the Fed window or the FDIC window. And because of that, they are regulated on the type of collateral that they can lend on. So mm. a couple of things here. Banks are, by the, the, the condition of the collateral, prohibited from lending on it. And they also like longer duration loans. Banks went loans for many, many years. This loan product is eight months. So banks are not a good fit for this loan product because of the duration as well as the, the condition of the collateral. Where zinc, we don't care about the condition of the collateral. We're, we understand it's in distress. We understand that it cannot be financed by a conventional lender. That's why our investor bought that house for 350000 and not four hundred and fifty, which is the price point of the other houses in that neighborhood. He got a deal. And now he's going to fix that that property up with fifty thousand dollars, and then he's going to resell it for four fifty. Our investors are safe. I'm safe, and it's and it's a good product. But I want to convey that we're not hard money. We do look at credit. Nobody here gets a loan if they have poor credit, and nobody gets a loan here if they don't have the proper liquidity or the proper safety cushion of, of some type of savings in the bank. They have to be a good operator. They have to be a good borrower to get a loan from saying we we loan on distressed properties, not distressed people. Yeah, really, I like the differentiator there. And I can see it. I can see the model of how you're working. I want to ask you a question about 
if you look back at the last five years, I always use the analogy, and, and some people know this and some people don't, but if you recall long-term capital management, that was, I think, late 90s, that was a big deal. And a lot of people don't even know about it. And it had potentially the ability to destabilize the banking system in the US. So it was a big bailout. If we look at that now and over the last five years, that has become just so inconsequential because things like that seem to happen almost on a weekly basis. Like it's been, it's been madness. So how have you been able to deal with that? And what have the last five years been like for you, the biggest challenges, and how have you navigated them? So my biggest challenge for that has probably been growth and how do we manage growth and how do we do, there's two things, manage our growth because we've been growing very fast and manage risk. And here's why I have been so heavy on those two things. The last five years, first of all, let me, let me say this. Over the last 90 years, housing has appreciated slightly above the CPI. Call it two and a half to three percent. That's the chart. Mm. Okay. And I'm going to get into your question about banking and risk and growth. What are the what are the obstacles? And here's the obstacles as I see it. Number one, housing has appreciated for the last period of time at call it two and a half, three, slightly above the CPI. Most people don't understand this, but at the turn of the century, most houses were very, very tiny, 800 square feet. Why? Because you could only get a five-year loan. And so houses at that time were bought with cash or with a financial instrument that was maybe five or 10 years. That's why all homes in the earlier period of time are so much smaller than our homes today. Then World War II came, took up a lot of energy, and the war ended. And the government was faced with how do we spur economic advancement? How do we spur this going? Because the war is now done. People are not employed by the war. They're not spending money on the things that are going into the war. It's all done. The federal government released out the 30-year amortization loan at that time. That was to spur economic advancement right after the war. That's where homes became 1,500, 1,600 square feet. And that's where you see a lot of homes in the 50s and 60s that are double the size of the 20s and 30s. Now here comes this period of time the collateralized debt obligation. Banks and credit unions and savings and loans were, back in the 90s and prior, were the ones that underwrote mortgages and kept mortgages. Somebody figured out, and I have inside knowledge of this, I actually know the people that were involved in the movie, the the movie, uh, the Wall Street movie, I forget the name, I can't think of it right now. Where Wall Street got involved, they created collateralized debt obligations that bought these mortgages and then carved them up and sold them all over the world. The Big Short? Yes. Yes. That is a very true movie. It's very real. I happen to know a couple of people that were involved in this whole cyclical period. And I wish I had more time to get into it because it's it's pretty fascinating. But in short, we had these subprime mortgages, these non-prime mortgages that were basketed, bundled, and insured, et cetera, and shipped all over the world. This created a vacuum effect for mortgages because the more they sold, they needed more. Hmm. And, and so in order to create more mortgages, we had to lower risk in order to enable more people to buy homes. And so the risk model got completely out of whack. It worked while appreciation was above 10% during this period, but it doesn't work in normalized times of 2.5% appreciation. Hmm. I'm going to say that again, back when appreciation was 10% plus during this period, during the collateralized debt obligation period, which is the mid-2000s, it actually started in 99, collapsed in 06. That period of fueling, unnecessary fuel in the fire created extreme appreciation and an appetite for risk that far exceeded what it should have been. Well, that was the ninja loans. Yes. No income, no job, no income, approved. No asset. I drove a pizza truck for six months. Give me a $450,000 loan. Those existed. Yeah. And... And the profit on those from a lender's, uh, from an originator's perspective were pretty elaborate as well. These were then taken and these were sold, but they didn't really work. They only worked because there was, there was high appreciation and it was, they were fed into CDOs. That obviously came to an end. Now we're at this period, the last five years. That's your question. The last five years have been an anomaly as well. We've had hyperinflation of all assets, not just housing, but stocks. It was all at 10% plus. This is not normal. 
three years ago and five years ago, I was speaking at conferences. I said, this is not normal. This will not continue. This is only happening right now because we have such a low cost of funds at the Fed window creating this expansion of credit that is causing a fuel of asset appreciation across our country. This will not continue. I predict it'll go another two to three years. It'll probably have a pretty uh, widespread effect. They will have to control inflation. So what we had, what we had here was hyperinflation due to free money that created yet another avenue of, of excess appreciation. It was above 12, 12.5%, 13%, 11%. This is unsustainable. I consider market sustainability to be 25 to 3.5%. So when you're at 10 and 12, that's simply too high. So you asked, what was my pain point over the last five years? My pain point was this. I knew throughout this entire period of 10, 12, 14% appreciation in housing, that party was going to end. It had to get back to 2.5%. The only way for it to get back to 2.5% is the Fed is going to have to wake up at some point and raise rates, increase the Fed window, and they'll have to do it drastically. They're going to be at a tipping point because they're going to have to raise it drastically and quickly in order to head off inflation. But they're also, we got the dream reaper of a recession too. And we don't want to have to hit that. So they have a delicate process. But that happened just like I thought it was going to happen. They increased rates pretty rapidly, diffused housing. But get this, we're actually still today, and this is exciting for me, to today, people think housing is is off. And it is if you watch the news channels, but it's really not. We're still not back to normalcy, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Appreciation is relatively stabilized right now. It's not 10 and 12, but it's where it should be. Zero, two, one, three. That's all normal. So when people talk about, oh, when's it going to get back to what it was? It will not get back to what it was. 10 and 12% was unsustainable. It could not continue. They had to increase rates. Mortgage rates are at 6% right now, probably where they should be. Appreciation is at zero to one to two. It's probably where it should be. We still have restricted inventory across the country and high desirability. So right now we have very low inventory, probably two, two to two and a half months supply. I consider adequate to be six to nine months. So we still have restricted inventory. We still have appreciation or neutrality in that. And so today I think it's back to neutrality, not the hyperinflation that we had, but I will tell you that it's probably back to where it should be. But managing risk, mm. when I knew that, that that musical chair game was going to stop, was difficult for me. Yeah. Because it's it's exciting that housing is so stable and it's appreciating at 10% and homes are being sold in 24 hours. But the reality is I knew that was not going to continue. And this is my money and my investors' money. So managing that risk and saying, hey, look, this is not going to continue and we have to be prepared for that. So we started dialing back our underwriting and started being more conservative at the very first signs, at the very first signs that we were starting to see slowing. And I could talk about that if you want, but the very first sign that I start to see slowing is when we start to pull back on our, on our underwriting and start to make it a little bit more restrictive in order to protect what? Our principal. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, and, but it's also got to be difficult because I mean, your job is to deploy capital. And, and to make sure that that's our job in, is to so. deploy capital, but always with the mantra, this is zinc income fund. This is a fund built with my friends, my family and my investors. And I'm not going to put my money out into an investment, especially at my age, where I know there's even any kind of really risk beyond nominal. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. It's tough. I have to deploy capital. That's part of our job. At the same time, we have to do it with risk in mind and be averse because principal protection is, is our key. You know, it should be on it should be on our sign on our front door. Gotcha. Really interesting. Now we've already ripped through an hour, which is I had a feeling this was going to happen. <laughs> it's been really interesting. Wow. Me. I want to ask a couple more questions before we wrap up, and this is one about we've talked about where you get your information for for making your investment decisions, but what about other podcasts, media? things that inspire you both personally and professionally? What keeps you interested? You know, what keeps me interested is I really kind of get my data or my information or my intel from, from really three sources. I get it from the Wall Street Journal. I get it from the National Association of Realtors. 
and then I get it from the from the General Services Administration. I don't necessarily go to a lot of news channels or periodicals for publication because often I find, unfortunately, it's relatively skewed. So I think podcasts are very, very transparent. And I think some other sources out there are also transparent. But when it gets into the mainstream news channels or mainstream periodicals, I tend to stay away from those. Not saying anything negative about them. It's just, I would call them more spin and spin on the actual topic than it is actual factual content. So I really like where I get my stuff, which is great straight from the federal government or the National Association of Realtors, because it's just, it's data metrics. And that's, ty- that's typically where I, where I get my information from. I have lots of, of negative things to say about the traditional media. So that's another I'm sure you do. I do too. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. I that's a whole other episode. Yeah, it is. I appreciate your, your notes there though. And then having really grown from rags to riches is, is the story that you've shared with us. What is the advice you have for, for now with, with everything you've learned along the way that you would have for business owners and entrepreneurs? My advice for business owners today is to be patient, 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 and still grind it out. I think we're in a very, very safe spot right now, at least Zinc Income Fund is. We focus on on entry-level housing or entry-level small-cap multifamily. We focus on a very safe asset space that we tend to be in with good, good yield. My advice to other business owners, and I do talk to them from time to time, actually quite, quite repeatedly, be patient and grind it out in a safe space as opposed to the get rich quick thing. I just don't think that works. I haven't been able to see it work. And most people that try that find out it doesn't work. So when I talk to my kids or their fathers that are trying to you know, start their own deal or start, start their own vision or start their own journey in an entrepreneur or a business or whatever, look, be patient, keep the grind going, grind it out, always do the right thing and it, and it will come naturally. So that's kind of my advice on that. I appreciate that. I just want to build on that advice in the sense that it's so easy, even as business owners and, and entrepreneurs, to think that you know that overnight success is going to be overnight, but it's it's built over five to ten years minimum. I think so. I, I do believe there can be an overnight success. I call that a market disruptor. Mm. What I mean by that is you would have to have some type of intellectual property or some kind of device that came to market that would completely disrupt the market. Yeah, yeah. and those are fewer and farther between. Yes, we have apps and software that can do that. So if you have a market disruptor in that, but boy, gosh darn, to, to hang your hat on that's what you're going to be able to create, I think is not is not appropriate. I mean, that's like saying I'm going to be the star quarterback on the NFL football team. Oh, well, yeah. that, is, that is possible, but your chance that it's point zero 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 one. Yeah. And I don't know that that should be your only goal. I mean, we want to go for our goals. We want to follow our dreams. But to hang everything on the fact that I want to be the best NFL football player and I'm going to get on that team is a far stretch. Yeah. So I think getting rich overnight on a market disruptor is also you know, pie in the sky. Find, find your passion, man. Find what you want to do, reasonably what you want to do, and simply stay at it every single day. Set your alarm, exercise, eat right, and go at it every single day. And be patient and just and just grind it out and it will come. You know, I did it from $17 and built a very, very large fund and a very large entity here that does hundreds of millions of dollars in lending with virtually no losses. That took a long time to get there. That took a long time. It does not happen overnight. So my advice to business owners and entrepreneurs is to be patient, always do the right thing and grind it out. You know, there look, I'm a lender for entrepreneurs that fix and flip properties, right? I mean, that's really what we we do here. It's the number one selling book on Amazon. The number one selling book on Amazon is how to flip and grow rich, how to get rich in real estate, yada, yada, yada. I call it the balloons and confetti syndrome. I call it my balloons and confetti. You have balloons and confetti syndrome. What's that? You went to the show, you bought the CD, there was lots of balloons and confetti, you bought the book, and now you want to go out and be rich overnight in real estate. I'm rich in real estate. You're not. And it doesn't happen overnight unless you had some type of market disruptor. It's grind and long-term capital deployment and investment. And in order to do that, you got to just always do the right thing, eat right, exercise, wake up, and just grind it out. But it doesn't happen overnight. The balloons and confetti that are sold on books and on TV shows in my industry, I don't think that it exists. I have not been able to do it. It just takes a lot of grind and a lot of hard work. So my advice to these operators out there, be patient, 
Always do the right thing. Set your alarm for six o'clock and get up and grind it out. That's it. Todd, thank you so much, man. I've really appreciated uh, our time and uh, it's nice to get to know you. Hey, Corey, thanks for having me on here. If I can help you with anything, please let me know. Super nice to meet you, especially a Fresno native. And it sounds like we landed here about the same time, which is about 35 years ago, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Interesting coincidence. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.